the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a Christian, you understand that there are certain things uh, in regards to your life, in regards to your relationship with God that are true, and you have a proper understanding of these things. And especially in light of other religions and perhaps uh, other uh, ways that people think that they can get to heaven or get to God, there are certain truths or doctrines that we mention all the time to emphasize who we are in Christ. For example, with a proper understanding of grace and the gospel, uh, we, we talk about works and that the fact that works don't matter because of God's grace and God's saving grace, what Jesus did on the cross. We also know that as believers, we are not under judgment. We are free from judgment by God. And so those are two things as we rest in Christ that we emphasize. Works don't matter, and we are not under judgment or we will never face judgment. And those two truths for the Christian are, in fact, not true. In fact, this morning, we will see that works post-salvation do matter, and all Christians one day will be judged. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, and in light of this, I want to give you three perhaps surprising reasons that Christian works matter. Three surprising reasons Christian works matter. Look at verses 12 through 15. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And it's that last verse, that last phrase that tells us, as well as the greater context, that Paul is talking about Christians. And so three reasons Christian works matter. The first is that the quality of works differs. The quality of works differs. Let me read for you again verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. In the context, Paul is talking about how he planted the church on the foundation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He laid the foundation of the gospel. And we know after he left, Apollos came in and was the pastor of the Corinthians. And then after Apollos left, there were other men who came and built up the church. This is all using terminology and the analogy of building and construction that we saw last week. This is all speaking of the local church, which of course in effect speaks of the, the worldwide church because that's what makes up the worldwide church is individual local churches. 
And you also know that the local church is made up of believers. We're not talking about a particular church building or a person's basement or a high school or anything like that. We're talking about the building up of the church in regards to the growing, the teaching, the building up of individual Christians. And so he's referring to preaching the gospel so that unbelievers came to Christianity. That was laying the foundation of the gospel. Then they are taught the Bible so as to grow the individuals, to grow in their faith, spiritual maturity, sanctification. You understand this. We're doing this all the time. And he grows the church not so much in breadth. In other words, not so much his focus was not on how many people would come, but taking the Christians who are there and growing them in depth of their knowledge. In other words, he's not so much concerned about numbers in the building up. Now, of course, the growing in numbers is inevitable and has continued since Paul came. But his focus is on the spiritual growth of the church. Of course, he's concerned with evangelism, but we know of all people, Paul had his theology right, and he understands that he could not change the heart, nor could the Corinthians. Anyways, we ended last week with a warning from Paul in verses 10 and 11 in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. This is talking about the foundation of the gospel. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul continues this analogy in speaking of the building up of the church. He already said that the foundation is Christ and nothing can change that. We saw that last week. No man can change the foundation if the foundation has been properly laid. So now in verse 12, for anyone who continues teaching, building, growing the church, which will continue happening until the end times, there are various materials with which he can build the church. This was true with him and Apollos and everyone who has come up to yours truly and will continue with pastors until the end of the church age. Specifically, Paul mentions six different types of building material, and of course this is fitting with the analogy. We're not building up people spiritually with physical materials, but he's making a point here. And the six that he mentions in the NAS are gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. The first thing you'll notice is that although there is a singular foundation, Jesus Christ, there is a variety of materials that can be used to build on top of that foundation. The second thing you'll probably notice is that there are six different types of materials that Paul lists that vary in their quality and value. But noticeably, right down the middle, three on one side and three on the other, they are split into two general categories. Those that are valuable and those that are cheap. The valuable materials, of course, are gold, silver, and precious stones. For a builder in that day, these would be costly. They're durable. They're fireproof. And they cannot be manufactured. The cheap materials are wood, stray, straw, rather, and hay. They're common. They are cheap. They are flammable. And they are perishable. And in Paul's day, all of these were actual building materials. 
naturally, the first three would not be commonplace. They would be in palaces. They would be found in the expensive homes of the wealthy. Even today, 2,000 years later, some of the remnants remain of these ancient marble and granite pillars. This would be precious stones. Wood, hay, and straw, on the other hand, would be what the normal people would build their homes of. Hay and straw would be mixed with dirt to make what they had as bricks in ancient times. Straw would be laid on top of roofs, thatched roofs we call them today, used in many parts of the world still. Both kinds of material were used, but their quality was very different. If a fire were to burn through the ancient city of Corinth, the wood and dirt homes of the average and the poor would be burnt to nothing, while the homes of the rich would remain standing, as some have for two millennia. So what's the difference in the varying quality of materials in this illustration for Christians? What is this referring to in regards to our spiritual growth and building up the church? Well, all six of these materials, and this is very important, All six of these materials, valuable or cheap, perishable or imperishable, all refer to good works. They all are referencing good works in the Christian life. They are acts of obedience. They are a fulfillment of why we were created and then saved, according to Ephesians 2.10, for good works. But it's not enough to do good works, even as a Christian. Because as we will see later, some of these good works are worthless to God and will be burned up. The wood, hay, straw, good works. And I want you to understand that when I say good works, I am not merely referring to things that would be considered secular or in the workplace. I am talking about good works that would be considered spiritual. Singing, giving to the church, attending church praying for other people. There are those types of good works that in the eyes of God will burn and are worthless to Him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What's the difference? What will last and what will burn? What will reap eternal reward and what will not? The key, and I don't think this will be a surprise to any of you, is the heart behind the good work the motivation, the heart attitude behind the good work. Because we know that obedience is not just doing externally what God wants. It's not just checking things off a list. It's not just showing up. It's not just reading some words in a leather-bound black book. It is the heart. It's doing what God wants, but with the motivation that God wants. It is obeying the words of Scripture, but also in obeying the key behind it, which is having the right heart attitude. In other words, gold, silver, and precious stones are good works that are done out of a desire to glorify God, out of a love for Him. So it's not about how much wealth or talent or opportunity or even your spiritual gifts that you have. It's how you respond to what you do have with the right attitude, how well you serve God. And again, that's not just in external excellence. It's in how well you serve God with the right heart attitude, which means that the same act of obedience in two different Christians 
Or perhaps the same Christian, but in two different situations. People can be gold for one and straw for another. The exact same act, the exact same prayer, the exact same attendance. Gold for one, hay for another. You know, we in our world tend to base the value of our actions on what others see. Base the value on results, on numbers, on praise from others. But we need to remember that it is God, not man, who determines the quality of your works. It is not for us, it is not even for me as a pastor to determine the quality of the works of others, and it's not for others to determine the quality of works for you because they can't see your heart. I'm not talking about if someone accidentally puts rat poison in the baked goods they bring to church, you shouldn't fix that. You understand that's not what I'm saying. We need to be excellent externally, but that that excellence must be motivated by a heart that desires excellence for the Lord. And the reason it's for God to determine is twofold. First, it's because it's His law. They're His rules. It's His will. It's His standard. It's His Son who died on the cross so that we could do these things. The second reason it is for God to determine is because only He can see the heart. And if what matters is the heart, then none of us can guess that. None of us can read that. It's possible someone tell you and so you know. But other than that, we don't know. We assume. We like to think we know. We like to guess. We like to assume the worst, assume the best, whatever it is. But we don't know. Only God determines the quality of your work because only God sees the heart. And in the context, this is talking about teachers. I said this last week. In the specific context, Paul is talking about those who build up the church as pastors, teachers, evangelists, leaders of the church, those who build up the church. And so what would be wood, hay, straw for a pastor? Those who, as we have seen for so long in 1 Corinthians, those who use man's wisdom or mix man's wisdom into their message. Those pastors who are seeking personal glory and not God's glory. Seeking selfish gain. Or as we saw last week, focusing on numbers and reputation of their church, which is just code for numbers and reputation for their own name. Over and above God's glory. That's all wood, hay, and straw. But... This principle does overlap into your spiritual life as well. Because picking up on this same judgment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 10, verse 10, we see what is called the Bema Seat. You might have heard that phrase used before, the Bema Seat of Judgment. That is this very judgment of Christians' works that we talk about. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, Paul is referring to all believers Let me read it for you. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's actually where we get the bema seat. It's the judgment is the Greek word bema. 
the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And again, we see the idea of eternal reward. We see the idea of God judging or determining the quality of every Christian's works. Again, known as the Bema seat of Christ because of the Word. So, again, we know that all believers will face this judgment of their good works. Now, remember, these are all biblical acts of obedience, even the ones that are worthless and will burn up. So, what is valuable and what is worthless? What is eternal versus fleeting? What is gold, silver, precious stones versus wood, hay, stubble? Let me give you some examples. Evangelism. We should all do it. We all do do it. But if you as a Christian do what is one of the most noblest and seemingly God-honoring things, sharing the gospel, if you share the gospel out of guilt or compulsion, that's wood. If you share the gospel out of a desire to glorify God, out of this burning desire that there should be more people saved so they can worship and glorify the Creator because He is worthy, then that's gold. Two people serving and worshiping God by singing on a Sunday morning. The one meditating on the words and just singing full blast because God is worthy. That's precious. The one singing and worrying about how they sound to others, thus singing louder because they know they have a good voice and want glory, or quietly because they're embarrassed, that's worthless. Giving generously to the church or to missionaries because of peer pressure, or because you realize your good friend counts the money, or the pastor knows how much you give, that's hey. Giving to the church because you want to extend the gospel's reach and serve others, emeralds in the eyes of God. And we can go into every area of life, raising your kids. Is you just raising your kids to be healthy and successful, to say, my son's a doctor, my daughter's a lawyer, that's straw. Raising your kids to be disciples of Jesus Christ, precious silver. Here's the point. The quality of the building must be appropriate to the foundation. And the foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means our goal in life and everything we do should be to serve and glorify God with our best, with full hope and dependence on Him. I'm going to say that again because that's the key between precious and not precious. Our goal in life in everything that we do, should be to serve and glorify God with our best and with full hope and dependence on Him. I want to give you a quick disclaimer. It is a wrong and twisted excuse to say, well, my heart's not right, so I'm just not going to serve give, raise, whatever. Don't do that. Don't do that. It is blasphemous. It is dangerous. It is just plain wrong. It's like what Paul says, 
Should we sin more so grace should abound? God just wants the heart and my heart's wrong, so should I just not serve? Please, finite Christian, don't try to use God's logic against him. You will lose. You see, the whole analogy is predicated on the assumption that as a Christian, you are pursuing good works. So don't just stop serving because your heart's wrong. Get your heart right and start serving. Get your heart right and obey. And in fact, the first act of obedience is getting your heart right. Well, the quality of works differs. A second reason Christian works matter is the test of works is promised. The test of works is promised. Look at verse 13 again. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. It will probably be more um, clear in English for me to say that this point is the test of works is guaranteed rather than promised, but I think you might have picked up that I do this a lot. The reason I like to use the word promised instead of guaranteed or sure whenever the Bible says something is going to happen is because whenever something is prophesied by God, it is a promise from God because it reflects the character of God. We need to understand that whether we deem it good or bad, positive or negative, heaven for the Christian or even hell for the unbeliever, that is a promise. You see, in our human minds, we only, only promise good things. Yes, son, I promise we'll go to the park. Yes, I promise we'll do something for Valentine's Day. But understand that what we deem bad, like judgment, hell, wrath, that is still a promise from God because He has said, I will do it, and His Word is true. So the test of works is promised. And what's promised here is that whether your works are precious or worthless will become evident, not to us, but to God on that day at the judgment seat of the Lord. Literally, the word means they will be made visible, manifest, or clear. When? Paul refers to the day, not a day. By virtue of the fact that he's using the definite article, the, shows that Paul is speaking of a specific day that would have been well known to the Corinthians. He is talking about the day of judgment, the end times judgment. This is found all over the Scriptures. And at that time, on that day, in that judgment, everything will be revealed by God to God with fire. The fire tests the quality of the work. Of course, he's still using an illustration here. Now, keep in mind, on that day, however it takes place, you know, we like to picture a, a video or a slideshow or whatever it may be. Uh, I believe there's, there'll be a clear, conscious understanding of all of these things as they're tested by God. On that day, when all of your works or paraded in front of you and tested by fire. There will be no fanfare. There will be no doting parents saying, well, you know, he was such a... There will be no supportive spouse. There will be no church attendance statistics. 
There will be no discipler saying, well, he's really good at such and such. It is just you and God and the fire. The fire, of course, is figurative for his judgment. In the real world, how do you test the quality of a material? Well, this is Paul writing 2,000 years ago. So before modern lasers and labs and testing machinery, there was a simple but effective way of testing the quality of something, and it was literal fire. Paul says that this judgment of fire not only reveals, but it tests. In fact, it is the testing that will reveal the quality of the work. And throughout the Scriptures and in that culture, fire was a motif that was associated with the judgment of God. Not only in Scripture, but it's found in much Jewish literature, especially the prophetic and apocalyptic writings. And we must be clear, especially those of us who are saved out of another uh, religion, this fire is not purgatorial. This is not a holding place after you die to refine you or to punish you before you go somewhere else. It is a simple test. It's not like a school test that places you in different levels, A, B, C, D, F. This is just pass-fail. This is a simple test that discloses your life's actions for either approval or disapproval and burning. There are no levels. There are no degrees or grades here. And that's what the word test means in the Greek, to approve after testing. Put to the proof. We use the term put to the test, right? And we usually use that term in a make or break situation. We don't say put to the test to see what level. I'm going to put him to the test. Is he man enough to be on this team? Is he hard enough to be a soldier, right? It's make or break, pass or fail. And that's the case here. So the point of this test is not to punish or to destroy the individual, And it's not even to refine. It's too late for that. You don't go through this judgment and get another thousand years to live to to make amends. No, this is it. This is the end. It It is to disclose the quality of their work for the Lord. Here's another way to look at it. When a metal is tested with fire, it is to determine whether or not it's genuine or how much of it is pure. And this is the test to see whether what seems like God-honoring obedience from the outsider's perspective is indeed true, genuine, God-honoring obedience. This is why some of you have taken your uh, family heirlooms to a jeweler to appraise it. Well, according to my mother who got from her mother who got from her mother, this is pure gold. Well, let me test it. And they're not going to throw it in a fire. They have modern ways to test it. But oftentimes, they come back and say, well, it's actually an alloy. This, or this is what people call fool's gold. Or it's just gold-plated or whatever it is. But from the outside, it has fooled generations and hundreds, if not thousands of people, depending on how often and where they wore that piece of jewelry. Oh, what a beautiful gold necklace. How many of you have done that? Oh, I like your pearls. Actually, glass. Right? We say that as Christians because we don't want to sound like we spend a lot of money on jewelry. It's just glass. Right? Fooled me. Right? 
but you're not going to fool the professional. And when it comes to our works and a hard attitude, there's only one tester, one judgment, one professional that is God. And though your works may fool everyone, including maybe even yourself, He will test it in the fire. And the fire will determine whether your actions were precious metal and stones, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. This is the righteous and absolute judgment of God. And that's why our third and final reason Christian works matter is so important. And that is the result of works is eternal. The result of works is eternal. Now, this, of course, has a different nuance, right? Those who pursue salvation through works, those results are eternal as well. And for those who pursue salvation through works, it is eternal damnation. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the judgment, the Christian works. And we've seen two so far. The quality of works differs. The test of works is promised. And now the result of works is eternal. Look at verses 14 and 15. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So there are two simple results here. Two types of works, two qualities of works, two results. First, the works are shown to be genuine, meaning Externally, in in accordance with Scripture, internally, in accordance with the heart that God desires. So you could basically say internally, according to Scripture, and externally, according to Scripture. The second result is that the works are shown to be worthless, so they are burned up like the wood and hay that they are, and you lose the reward, but you won't lose your salvation. Let's start with the first. Going back to the analogy of construction If you built with good materials, then they will pass through the fire and still be there. Paul says they will remain because gold, silver, and precious gems don't burn in the fire and neither do good works with the right heart. The result is reward and the reward is eternal. And the theme of reward connects back to what we saw in verse 8. Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so there's varying degrees of reward based on how much gold and silver and precious gems you have. We also find this elsewhere in the New Testament. I think I mentioned some of these verses back when we looked at verse 8. Uh, Matthew twenty-five twenty-one is a famous one. Well done, good and faithful slave. Revelation twenty-two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done, and many others. But think about this. This is forever reward from God. That's much better, I think we would all agree, than temporal wealth from man or fleeting praise from coworkers or congregants. And I mention these things because these are the things that make us do good works with the wrong motives. Fame, fortune, fun. We aren't told exactly what this reward is. Perhaps our finite minds cannot fully understand it. There are analogies and metaphors used to describe the reward as crowns and gold and things like that. 
But we don't know exactly what it is. But does it really matter? (laughs) It is reward from God, and it's forever. If If you participated in a secret Santa gift exchange at work or at church, someone spills the beans and you know who picked your name, I'm like, ah, what did they get me? Tell me, what did they get me? Because you're, you're wondering, right? Maybe it's something nice, maybe it's not. There's, a, there's a, a cap on how much they can spend. You're kind of like, it could be good or bad. And, but if you know someone who has been extremely generous in the past because he's extremely wealthy and say he's going to give you a gift, you're not so much excited about what it is. You're just excited that you're going to get it because you know it's going to be good. This is eternal reward from God. I thought of a, a different analogy, but it really pales in comparison to this, so I scrapped it, but I'm going to give it to you anyways in honor of us being back live in person again. And this probably won't resonate for many of you. I don't mean to sound sexist, but this might resonate with the women more. If someone said, oh man, I got for Valentine's Day a huge box of Godiva chocolate. You wouldn't say, which truffles did you get? No, you would just say, Godiva. It's the best of the best. Hey, I just came back and got my first car from the Ferrari dealership. Oh, really? What size rims? No, you'd just be like, let me take me for a ride. You don't even care what model it is, what color it is. It's a Ferrari. And how much more eternal reward from God? Who cares what it is? Care about the giver. Care about the fact that He is giving you reward that will last forever. And don't sacrifice any of it for reward here. Don't do that. It's from God. It's it's forever. You really want to compare that to, yeah, but I, I, I get it. I get that it's eternal, like forever, forever. Like it won't fade. I won't lose it. It's forever and it's from God, so it's going to be good. But man, this, I'm going to get a, a one-year membership to something from my boss and I really want that instead. Even being a millionaire pales in comparison to this. I'm not saying that you can't have both. I'm saying for the average person, like you and I, in order to get a lot of these things, like man's praise, ahead in our job, riches, we sacrifice the eternal reward because we're sacrificing obedience and the right heart. We change what should be our life's goal of glorifying God, and we make it about ourselves our house or the house we want, our car or the car we want, our family or the family we want, our pocketbooks, our ego, whatever it may be. Fame, fortune, and fun. This is why what we've just read is one of the most significant passages in the New Testament that encourages and warns those who are responsible for building the church. Again, there is a particular relevance to pastors, teachers, church leaders, evangelists. 
And in that, in that vein, I mean, I don't think anyone's ever asked me because you already know the answer. Do I envy false teachers because they have vacation homes all over the world, private jets, and a viewership of hundreds of thousands? Absolutely not, because most of them, not only are their works going to burn, they're going to burn. I mean, it's sad. We should weep for these people. We shouldn't be envious, glad that they're so wealthy. We should weep for them because they're going to stand before God and all their works will be paraded in front of them. These people are burning the midnight oil. 80-hour week, work weeks. And it's all going to burn. Many of them know, some of them don't. And so this is so important to understand what he's talking about here. But this principle, again, and judgment is for all believers. So that's the first option. Pass the test, you get reward. There's a second, but only a second possible result. In other words, there are only two options here. If your works are not God-honoring, they will be burned up like the wood, hay, and straw that they are. And the end result is that you will suffer loss. That is, you will lose your reward. Again, any Christian service driven by self-interest will be burned up regardless of how much that service may have benefited others. You understand this. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. God doesn't need you to share the gospel. He wants your heart. So it is possible, hypothetically speaking, but possible, that one guy shares the gospel a total of a thousand times before he dies and gets zero converts. And another guy shares the gospel 10,000 times in his lifetime before he dies and gets 5,000 converts, genuine converts to the Lord. And it's possible that this guy's works all burn up and this guy is swimming in gold. Because God looks at the heart not at the number and the results. And again, this is not saying, well, my heart's right, so I need to do the minimum. That means your heart's not right. We still need to go out and serve and do all of these things. This is so sad to see at the last day all of your Christian life's works, everything you've devoted your life to as a believer, burned up and swept away. Standing before God with nothing when he could have piled on to you so much. A life wasted and yet, and perhaps this is the worst part, fully conscious of what could have been. No second chances. Right now, It may seem good to receive selfish gain, man's approval, personal comfort, church-wide popularity. 
But that is a terrible price to pay in the end when it truly matters. And again, though this applies to all believers, the specific context focuses on church leaders, those who teach man's wisdom, those teachings, those sermons, no matter how positive, how much they change someone's life, they'll be burned up. You know what else will be burned up in sermons from sermons or the, the, the public ministry of teachers in the church? It's not even those who teach heretical doctrines, but teach in such a way that they are merely human notions or human social opinions mixed in with the gospel, burned up. As we've said it before, anything added to the gospel is not the gospel. Anything taken away from the gospel is not the gospel. The gospel is simple, it is clear, it is fundamental, and it is rock solid. Chip it away and it's no longer that rock. So, we need to be careful as Christians to follow the leadership of men and churches, teachers, evangelists, whose works will not burn up. Now, I understand you can only go so far because you don't know my heart or the heart of anyone you see on YouTube or listen to on the radio or read their blogs, Christian leaders, I mean. But you can test their doctrine. You can see if they are truly teaching the Word of God. And if they do get involved with social issues, that it is based on Scripture and doesn't replace it, We need to be careful. I also want you to keep in mind that this is judgment, not wrath. There is a difference. We do not face the wrath of God. Look at the end of the verse. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. Romans chapter 8, 38 through 39. It is important uh, for me as your pastor that when possible you see these verses in your own Bibles. Romans 8, 38 through 39. You know it. I believe we've sung this verse in a song. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, and can I add, nor even selfish works, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though your works may burn up, that doesn't separate you from the love of God. He still loves you. You are still entering into His eternal glory because of what His Son did on the cross. doesn't mean He dislikes you or hates you or that you're facing His wrath. He still loves you and will gladly open up His arms into eternal rest and worship. But be reassured that despite the results of this test, you, Christian, will be saved. 
in the final day. But don't take that too far as that's not the point of this passage. In other words, the point of this passage is not, this is not a, a, a passage on eternal security. The point is to live in a way that you will gain eternal reward. And it's actually pretty neat what Paul is doing here. Remember the whole problem already? The Corinthians are fighting for, for, uh, for praise and trying to associate themselves with different factions, different people to make themselves look good. And with the wisdom of God, Paul is using the Corinthians' desire for status and reward and shifts their focus to the future judgment and possible reward of God. And I think this may be a practical approach for us as well. To answer the question, well, how do I do this? Because I find myself selfishly or just out of a, a sense of obligation serving. To remind yourself that there is a greater reward and be motivated by that. To take that same craving, that same sinful desire for the praise of man, and take that same desire, make it holy, and crave the praise of God. Crave the well-done, good and faithful slave of God. Crave the reward not of man, but of God. And it is uh, gut-wrenching as we search our hearts because what I just said is clearly easier said than done. Because if you truly crave man's desire, uh, you, sorry, crave or desire man's praise and riches, it is a circular thing, Right? Because the more riches you have, the more praise you will get. You get a taste of it, and then you want more. And maybe it's not just praise. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's sex. Maybe it's fulfillment with family. Maybe it's higher education. Maybe it's just the personal desire to know more, even if no one knows how many letters you have after your name. Whatever it is, we must change that so that we seek God's glory, God's reward, God's praise. Uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever uh, done something? Maybe you had an opportunity at work or maybe even uh, an opportunity with a, a friend that's visiting or a, a child, right? And you didn't take that opportunity and you look back and you thought, I knew I should have done that. Now I don't have a picture. Now I don't have that experience. Now I don't have whatever it may be. As a stock trader, I feel like that all the time. Coulda, shoulda, woulda, right? But as a trader, even as an employee, even as a spouse, even as a father, a child, there's always another chance. Maybe not the same chance, but there's always another opportunity. Can you imagine looking back and thinking, I knew I should have done that at judgment? When there's no going back, no chance to fix it, no second chances, and the consequences of your woulda, shoulda, coulda is eternal? Here's the point. Serve in the light of that day of judgment. And you will receive and enjoy God's approval, not just on that day, but also today.
Serve in light of that day of judgment, and you will receive and enjoy God's approval, not just on that day, but also today. Christian works matter because the quality of works differs, the test of works is promised, and the result of works is eternal. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which, has, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as amazingly and wonderfully as you have created us with such advanced minds and systems of physical development and movement, and what's more to have redeemed us in our minds and our souls so that we are a people that know you and can understand your word through the help of the Holy Spirit. We know that we are sinners and that we are finite. And it is so hard, Father, to seek and desire something that is so far away and, frankly, unseen. But we know that with your help and with a proper understanding of your word and guidance by your spirit and his conviction, We can do this and we can refocus and we can strive so that we will find and seek reward not just here but from you, for you, and eternally. I pray that you would help us each as individuals to gauge how we can do that in each of the circumstances you have so graciously put us, whether it's work or family, bus stops or wherever else. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to seek what most honors you and furthers your kingdom. We want to seek reward in heaven and not here on earth. So help us to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.